Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, several major publishing houses are suing the Internet Archive. Why? And what could the ramifications of the lawsuit have on the Archive and on digital access to knowledge more broadly? A deep dive for your ride home. The Internet Archive. You probably know it for its Wayback Machine, which has preserved over 736 billion web pages from the last quarter of a century. If a page somewhere has been taken down for nefarious or neutral reasons, people hit up the Wayback Machine to find it again. Or maybe you go to archive.org to find images or video clips under the Creative Commons license to remix in projects you're creating. Personally, I use the Internet Archive's open library all the time in my research, especially for this show. Their open library provides access to digital versions of millions of books for free. Books that are in the public domain are available to download, and other books can be borrowed for one hour at a time, so long as no one else has tried to rent it, viewable on archive.org's website. I use this feature all the time when I want to reference a book that I don't already own when I'm writing a segment. While for a longer-term project, I might try to get the book from my local library or purchase it if it's actually still in print or not priced exorbitantly on some rare books website. But the open library is perfect for the quick turnaround of this show. And like ebooks that you can rent through your local library through apps like Libby, the open library allows one person at a time to be reading the book, just like if there were only one physical copy of the book in the library. But back at the start of the pandemic, the Internet Archive launched the National Emergency Library. In response to library closures around the nation in March of 2020, the Internet Archive announced that they would temporarily lift the restrictions on the number of users who could check out a book at one time. No more waiting for someone to finish reading a book. If two or ten or a hundred people wanted to read a copyrighted book at the same time, they could. 
Now, the Internet Archive always planned to end the program on June 30th, but after outrage from publishing houses and some prominent authors, the National Emergency Library shuttered its virtual doors a few weeks early on June 11th. Four of those publishing houses, Hachette Book Group, HarperCollins, John Wiley and Sons, and Penguin Random House, sued the Internet Archive for, quote, willful mass copyright infringement, end quote, alleging that the archive made 127 of of their books publicly available without the publisher's permission, which both infringed on their intellectual property rights and ate into their profits. The lawsuit has been ongoing for two years now, but recently both sides requested the Manhattan federal court fast-track it by ruling ahead of a trial. To effectively explain the disagreement here, we need to dig a little bit deeper into how ebooks work at libraries. Similar to video rental stores back in the day, when a library purchases an ebook, they're paying a lot higher than the retail price, between $20 and $65 per ebook, according to Wired in 2020, compared to the average $15 retail price of an ebook. And usually, the libraries aren't actually buying that ebook. They're buying a license to use the book for a certain amount of time or a certain number of checkouts. As ebook rentals through libraries skyrocketed during the early part of the pandemic, some publishers made their licensing terms even stricter, with new limits on new titles or pricing models that are impractical, especially for smaller libraries out there. At the same time, other publishing houses did occasionally cut deals on certain titles, like during Pride Month or Black History Month, but the power still lied in the publishing house's control. And there is another option beyond ebook licensing, controlled digital lending. With controlled digital lending, or CDL, instead of purchasing a license for an ebook, a library scans a physical book that they already own in their collection and makes that available to rent out digitally. Now, crucially, only one patron can rent the book out at once. When it is rented digitally, the physical book is also removed from the shelf so no one else can check it out, so it still remains effectively one single copy. This is basically what the Internet Archive's open library does. They own the physical books which they bought legally, and one person can check out the digitized copy at a time. The National Emergency Library that they started in 2020 broke the concept of controlled digital lending by letting an infinite number of people check out a given book at the same time. That is the crux of the lawsuit. But there is some concern that the suit could open the door for more scrutiny of controlled digital lending in general. Now, while it is sometimes noted as a potential cost-saving alternative for ebooks for libraries, the main CDL website says they are not aware of any libraries that have canceled their ebook subscriptions in favor of CDL. And for one thing, it takes a lot of work to scan and digitize an entire book. Most libraries don't have the resources to do so en masse. Also, CDL is often used for books that don't have ebook licenses available. That's one big advantage to CDL that the Authors Alliance in particular, who filed an amicus brief in favor of the Internet Archive, is hoping will convince the courts. There are a ton of books out there that have never been made into ebooks. Controlled digital lending is the only way for these books to be accessed remotely. 
See, while it's typical standard practice to make ebooks when a book is published now, it obviously hasn't always been, since ebooks are a relatively new innovation. Many public domain books have been digitized into ebooks as they entered the public domain, but books that fall between their copyright not yet having expired and the advent of ebooks represent what Dave Hansen from the Authors Alliance calls a 20th century black hole. The only way to access many copyrighted print books is either being able to physically travel somewhere that allows you to access a physical copy or being able to digitally access a scanned copy. And especially for books with much more limited print runs, like a lot of academic titles, there simply aren't that many copies out there in the world. Getting your hands on some titles requires literally traveling to a certain library or physical archive and often having special research permission to read the book within the walls of that institution. Controlled digital lending has opened that access up quite a bit for people unable to travel just to read one book, or in the case of the Internet Archive, opened up access to people without institutional credentials. For years, publishers have basically looked the other way on the Internet Archive's open library and CDL practices in general, but the National Emergency Library changed that. More on the lawsuit, how authors have responded, and what the whole situation means for the future of the internet after the break. So ebook usage was on the rise during the pandemic, as we all stayed at home and people finally learned that Libby existed as a free alternative to Audible. Many libraries invested in licensing and subscriptions for ebook programs, and some also started doing controlled digital lending to make some of their older physical books available digitally to one patron at a time. The Internet Archive was chugging along for years using CDL for their open library, but then in March 2020, they flew too close to the sun with their National Emergency Library. Despite the archive's intentions for it to be temporary and their argument that the unique emergency of the pandemic and unprecedented closure of physical libraries justified it, the National Emergency Library was just too egregious an infringement on copyright in the eyes of the publishing houses and of several authors, at least initially. Authors like Chuck Wendig, N.K. Jemison, and Colson Whitehead spoke out against it at the time, although many authors have since changed their minds, and in Wendig's case made it clear he has nothing to do with this lawsuit. Now, in terms of where authors generally fall on this topic, Slate points out that the types of books a writer publishes often informs where they fall. Academic writers are primarily writing books to contribute to scholarly discourse, to be cited in other academic writing, and to generally share knowledge. It's not really about the Benjamins. You know, ask any professor what their royalty checks look like. With exceptions for those who veered more into pop history or pop science takes, it's probably not much. The goal of many of their books is to be read by other scholars, which means those books need to be accessible to those other scholars. Meanwhile, as Slate says, fiction and commercial writers rely more heavily on royalties. They're writing the kinds of books that get stocked at chain bookstores and featured on BookTok, the books that people are possibly buying even more than they are reading. 
I also watched a number of videos from self-published authors back when this lawsuit began who were particularly upset about the National Emergency Library and even the Open Library, which does make sense. As self-published authors, they keep basically all the money that they earn and tend to pay much more attention to their revenue as compared to us folks who published with publishing houses. We get a more marginal cut of revenue and often lack access to real-time data about our sales, so it's a little easier to be more ambivalent about these sorts of things. As former civil rights lawyer and sci-fi fantasy author Tochio Nyabuchi told Slate, quote, The publisher gets paid before the author does, and the publisher gets paid a bigger chunk than the author does, end quote. I want us authors to get paid, of course, but some are more affected by things like controlled digital lending than others. And Onyobuchi also added, in terms of claims that the huge drop in book sales in the first few months of the pandemic were directly attributable to the National Emergency Library, quote, I think if there was any significant market impact on bookstores, it was probably COVID that did it, not the Internet Archive, end quote. Onyobuchi, by the way, also has some great ideas for how publishers should be working with the Internet Archive and vice versa. Digitization is a fact of life these days. It's a service and resource the Archive can provide to publishers. And the Archive could consider working with publishers by adding links to purchase books on their sites, which would be more than libraries do for publishers. I would love to see an outcome from this lawsuit that results in an amicable relationship between the Internet Archive and publishers. I kinda doubt it will happen, though. The most I think we can hope for is that the Internet Archive gets merely a slap on the wrist for this one infringement, and the issue is dropped beyond that. Because what people are really scared of is the ramifications for digital lending of all types, across the board, not just the Internet Archive and not just books, as well as the potential for this legal entanglement to bankrupt the Internet Archive and prevent them from continuing their preservation of the world's knowledge. I mean, here's the thing. The National Emergency Library was a bit too bold, but they stopped doing it, and everything else they offer is fully above board. If the publishing houses were to go all the way, the Internet Archive could be facing up to $150,000 in damages per work, and they have scanned over a million copyrighted books. Now, this particular suit only targets 127 works from the publishing house plaintiffs, but even that would add up to $19 million. Slate claims the Internet Archive could foot this since their publicly available tax records show they've grossed more than $20 million each year for the last few years, largely from donor contributions, so if they needed to perhaps rally the masses, they could. But that's ignoring the fact that the Archive is a nonprofit, and their net annual income after expenses is occasionally in the red. All those servers and staff cost money. In 2020, their net income was $1.8 million. Not nothing, but not $19 million to throw around. As James Grimmelman, a copyright scholar at Cornell University, told Ars Technica in 2020, the publisher's lawsuit paints an inaccurate picture of the Internet Archive's intentions. Now, Penguin Random House alone earned $4.4 billion in 2020. I don't know what their net income was, but considering it's not unusual for them to give celebrities book advances in the range of and far exceeding the Internet Archive's annual net income, I think it's safe to say the publishing houses have the upper hand financially here. 
And to Grimmelman's point, while the lawsuit tries to show the Internet Archive as, quoting ours, effectively a commercial operation, profiting from copyright infringement, which has earned millions of dollars from contracts to scan books on behalf of partners such as other libraries, end quote. Which is true, but those millions have gone directly back into their work each year. And quoting again, The lawsuit fundamentally misunderstands the motivations of Brewster Kahle, the founder of the Internet Archive and still its driving force. Grimmelman believes that Kahle, a 1990s dot-com entrepreneur who has sunk millions of dollars in the Internet Archive, is fundamentally an idealist. End quote. And you only need to watch a few seconds of Kale in media spots of the archive over the years to get that. He calls the Internet Archive Library of Alexandria 2.0. He has sculptures made of employees on their three-year mark as a showcase of gratitude for their service to the world. He believes that the Internet Archive is doing the absolutely vital work of preserving digital records that would otherwise be lost, as well as providing universal access to all knowledge. And while his zeal might not be everyone's cup of tea, he's not exactly wrong. The Internet Archive absolutely is providing a crucial service. With the National Emergency Library, the Internet Archive believed they were providing a service to the public, and most likely was not trying to cut into the publishing house's profits, and it's debatable how much they did at all. But this misstep with the National Emergency Library could spell the end of the archive as we know it, either through financial ruin in this one court case or by unleashing the corporate hellhounds. Quoting again from Slate, A more worrying result could be that other copyright holders, periodical and website publishers, music labels, film and TV studios, could decide to pursue the archive themselves to configure a new legal precedent to their favor, neither take down everything they'd like or further hurt the Internet Archive's finances, end quote. The archive houses all kinds of media, music, movies, software, games, and each of those in all different formats, which all have different kinds of copyright treatment. There could be new legal precedent set that changes the Internet Archive and all other forms of lending or preservation digitally beyond them, too. Access to knowledge, to books, to web pages, to old newsreels, to everything is so important to the furthering of society and something I've become increasingly worried about the more we all become tied to our personal algorithms. On the latest episode of Roman Mars's 99% Invisible podcast, he digs into online search and how it's kind of broken at this point. Mars talks to Adam Rogers, senior tech correspondent at Insider, about how tough it is to even search our own personal data these days. Rogers points out that when we are amassing so much data all the time, messages, photos, videos, and we don't have a very good way of searching for them, we end up kind of living constantly in the present. Mars's example is how tough it's become to find a flight confirmation number among all the other spammy airline promotional emails in his inbox. Rogers points out how tough it is to search for a particular photo you yourself once posted on Instagram. And Rogers says, quote, That's a personal and also a cultural amnesia that I think becomes troubling. We lose moments from the past. You end up only existing in the moment where you share the stuff, and then it doesn't exist anymore because you can't go back and search it. End quote. That cultural amnesia 
is what the Internet Archive is actively working against. It is working to make sure digital records, so easily lost, deleted, or forgotten, are actually preserved. And it's allowing the public to have access to those records and to knowledge beyond just the first page of Google. It is my hope that some of the profit-driven heads of these publishing houses can recognize that even if they want the Internet Archive to be punished for the National Emergency Library, punishing them to the extent that they can no longer function would be a huge detriment to society in the present and perhaps more importantly in the future. Slate concluded their recent piece on the lawsuit with a similar sentiment, quote, If the Internet Archive does lose the case, Peter Suber, director of the Harvard Open Access Project, believes it would put an end to CDL now and in the future. We will not be legally allowed to take full advantage of the affordances of the Internet for sharing literature, and that would be a tragedy. The Internet Archive would obviously have to shut down its practice, and any public libraries using or considering CDL would draw back too. Ultimately, that will hurt researchers and readers alike. More symbolically, a loss for the Archive here would mean yet another blow to the techno-optimistic quasi-libertarian vision that governed the web's early years. Virtual spaces free from elite control and disruption. An online society based on sharing and discourse over profit. This is not a direction that the internet has ended up going. This kind of free-to-use, nothing-costs-anything utopian vision, said Stephen Witt, tech reporter and author of How Music Got Free. Witt continues, The powers that be made that go away. And this is just a cleanup action in a fight that was won long ago. End quote. Wit may be right, but I hope we can find some room for the techno-optimists at the Internet Archive, even if it means muddying the waters a bit with click-to-buy suggested book links littering every page of the open library. Well, yet another day in which I got a bit carried away and ended up with an entire episode on just one topic. I had a lot of other cool things I wanted to highlight today, too, but kind of out of time, so I guess there is always tomorrow. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.